This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you're listening to this show, you probably like history. If you also like bourbon and want to dive into the history, science, and stories behind the labels, you have to check out Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. With three new episodes every week, you can learn all about the best bottles, the personalities behind your favorite brands, and get the juicy scoop on all things whiskey. For example, I just learned that bourbon is a distinctive product of the United States. It can't be produced anywhere else in the world. Kind of like champagne. And no, not all bourbon has to be made in Kentucky either. Join your hosts, Kenny, Ryan, and Fred on an epic bourbon adventure. Subscribe and follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, Danny, my good sir? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I'm feeling. I'm feeling pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Uh, right now, it is Thursday, ten fifteen p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, what eleven p.m. Puerto Rican time? Right. Actually, no. It's 10.15 p.m. Puerto Rican time because we Ah. don't observe daylight savings and stuff like that. So when y'all sprung forward, we hit the same time. (laughs) Ah, I gotcha. Um, This episode is going to be released on Monday. This is going to be released four days after recording it. So, again, commenting on anything that's going on in the ground in Ukraine wouldn't make sense because... Things are going to be completely different, most likely, by the time this episode re- releases. Hopefully, the war has ended. That's the only thing I'm really hoping for, is that the war ends by the time this episode releases. But, you know, who I'm knows what's going to happen. Breath, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I'm not holding my breath, but maybe who knows, something something good happens. But what we're going to do today is that we're going to talk about something we've, we've talked about before, but... We're going to do it in more detail today. And okay. that's that subject is Vladimir Putin as in who is he? Where does he come from? How did he get so powerful? Because it's a weird story. Because Definitely weird. the first thing you need to know about Putin is that he went from head of the FSB to prime minister to acting president to the elected president. So in just a few months... Putin went from being a deep state bureaucratic type guy. He went from that to being the, in the pinnacle of political power. Right. And, and there Putin, was also a bunch of stuff from beforehand, too, <laughs> that happened pretty quickly, too. Quick rundown. Putin was president from 1999 to 2008. Then he was prime minister from 2008 to 2012, while his right-hand man, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, was president. Uh, then he returned back to the presidency in 2012. 
You could say that uh, Medvedev was holding the presidency for him. Um, others say that Putin only came back after Medvedev was burned by the Obama administration in, during Libya. Uh, but that's a different story. Yeah. That's an interesting timeline, actually. A lot of folks seem to believe that he's been president continuously for decades, which, honestly, kind of correct. Um, but uh, what's interesting, I think, is that you know in the first election he ever participated in, he was already the incumbent president. So that's pretty interesting. So the question comes up, you know, how did this guy rise to power, you know, in not only this huge former superpower, but also in a state that was frankly run by gangsters? Yeah. So um, in the 1990s, Russia was ran by a collection of mafia figures as well as oligarchs. For example, the mob wars in Russia in the 1990s, they blow anything out of the water when, it, when compared to the U.S. mob. Just massive mob wars in Moscow and, and other cities across across Russia. Um, you know, political blackmail was the norm. Uh, journalists were assassinated on a regular basis. For example, Russia's version of Walter Cronkite was uh, likely assassinated by the oligarch Boris Borzowski. Um But, you know, this was a time of just like the mass looting of former Soviet-owned industries, hyperinflation, a huge decline in the standard of living, um, a disastrous military intervention in Chechnya. Um, you know, NATO was starting to expand eastward. Many Russians look at this time as a period of uh, humiliation and national embarrassment. Here's a quote from the Wall Street Journal. Between 1992 and 1994, the rise in the death rate in Russia was so dramatic that Western demographers did not believe the figures. The toll from murder, suicide, heart attacks, and accidents gave Russia the death rate of a country at war. Western and Russian demographers now agree that between 1992 and 2000, the number of surplus deaths in Russia deaths that cannot be explained on the basis of previous trends was between five and six million persons. So there was just a huge decline in the standard of, standard of living. There was mass poverty across Russia. And it kind of breaks my heart as, you know, someone who's a free market guy, you know, talks about Austrian economics. You know, they had communism. They had a centralized economy. And then they went capitalist, and then it was a complete disaster. It's a heartbreaking story. Like, they they got capitalism in the worst possible way, the most crony version of capitalism that you could possibly get, and it became the most corrupt country on the face of the earth. Yeah. So when you look at Russia in this context, you can see how Putin rose to power because— Russia historically has always been a great power, and uh, Putin positioned himself as a patriot who was going to take Russia through this restoration or a renewal process. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen um, there was this pro-Putin rally recently, where there was about mm-hmm. a hundred thousand people in this, I think, in the soccer stadium in Russia, and it kind of looked like a Trump rally. Yeah, yeah, that's the one where he was wearing that blue fifteen thousand dollar puffy jacket. I saw that. Yeah, it was nuts. It it was like a very nationalist, uh, pro Russia, patriotic type rally. It really reminded me of what Trump rallies looked like, um, you know, during his 
for in 2016. Well, maybe now would be a good time to kind of talk about his background, you know, before he got into politics. Yeah. So um, Putin was born in 1952. His father was a factory worker. His grandfather allegedly was a personal cook for for both Lenin and Stalin. His family, they were survivors of the Nazi siege of Leningrad. Um, he, he had actually he had actually had a brother who had died during the siege as a baby. So this was before Putin was even born. But uh, he grew up poor in a communal apartment in St. Petersburg. At the time, it was called Leningrad with three other families. Um, I think everyone knows that he's a judo champion, right? Have you ever mm-hmm. seen his judo, his, his uh, like yearly calendars? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen him. Um, Isn't that where that um, that like shirtless horse photo comes from too? I don't or know if he, the, yeah, the shirtless horse photo comes from the calendar. Yeah, so probably I'm pretty that sure one. that comes from the calendar. A lot of funny stuff. The best one is when he's in one of those. Um, you ever see the movie Fly? Uh, I think it's Fly Away Home. The movie about the geese. Where he, they you know like how they that, have like, that propeller-driven like um, hang glider thing? Yeah, you know that plane that they have. He mm-hmm. is manning one of those planes, leading geese south. Wait, really? I gotta yeah. look that up. That's funny. That's some weird looking geese, dude. I don't know. Is that is that a goose? No, that's something else. It's a, it's a Russian a, goose. But yeah, a, that's the funniest picture, in my opinion. But yeah, we all know that he was a judo champion. It's highlighted. He was a black belt, so he was good. He was a, he was a I think the champion of Saint Petersburg. I think they uh, rescinded but, his his titles recently, like the International Judo League or whatever governing body of judo. I'm pretty sure I read that they were like rescinding his titles due to the. Uh, yeah, I saw I saw that too. Um, so in the early 1970s, he went to Leningrad State University, where he joins the Communist Party. After, and um, after he graduates, he joins the KGB. So this is in 1975. In 1985, he was sent to East Germany. And then he rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel in the KGB, which is a moderate rank. It's not like the head of the KGB. It was more of a kind of like a mid-level moderate position or role. Now, when the Soviet Union was collapsing, he was basically one of the guys who shut off the lights at the KGB's uh, Dresden headquarters. Mm-hmm. And allegedly, this was something that deeply impacted him. Um, every single biography that you read on Putin is going to highlight this part. And, um, you know, he he talks about getting uh, nothing but radio silence from Moscow when he was asking for help w- while dealing with these massive protests in East Germany. And this is something that we hear a lot in Western media when they're kind of trying to paint his motivations. They all say, oh, this all goes back to his time in Dresden when he saw the, his beloved Soviet Union collapse. And that's where he began his life mission to restore the Soviet empire. That seems you know, to be the going narrative. Going back to his life, when he returned to Russia, um, he was recruited as an aide by the mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak. And um, 
Sobchak was his former law professor. So um, under Sobchak, he was responsible for handling contacts with foreign companies and, and doing things like, you know, helping companies get through bureaucratic hurdles. And, you know, apparently he was very good at it. And his experience um, in East Germany gave him that international experience. And you can see how other economies work. And, you know, he built his contact portfolio. So he was very competent at this job working with foreign businesses. So Subchak, he is, you know, this um, typical Russian mayor or, or governor at the time. He's a very corrupt guy. And he's eventually voted out of office in 1996. He's later put under criminal investigation. And I think it's for um, privatizing these former Soviet housing projects to his friends or, or something like that. Something to do with, uh, you know, giving benefits to uh, former you know, multi-family homes or something like that. And this guy Subchak got a bad uh, break. The shit was happening everywhere, and he got caught. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it was more people were prosecuted based off like their politics and stuff. There wasn't like yeah. a consistency to the law. But sure. um, n- now, this is this is where Putin, you know, really jumps into the political scene. Putin helps smuggle. Subcheck out of the country, and um, you know this actually grabs the attention of Boris Yeltsin. A New York Times article it was po- it was written in two thousand, and it's about Boris Yeltsin's memoirs. If you want to sure. read that, yeah, I can I can take this. So uh, it reads: Using his connections in Saint Petersburg, Putin made a deal with the private airline and brought Subcheck out to Finland. From there, Subcheck made his way to Paris. Mr. Putin's covert operation to smuggle the ailing Mr. Sobchak out of the country was of questionable legality and was done without Mr. Yeltsin's knowledge or approval. But, and this is a quote here, when I learned what Putin had done, I felt a profound sense of respect and gratitude towards him, Mr. Yeltsin says. So in essence, Yeltsin's like, oh, like, I can work with this guy. Like, this guy showed a lot of loyalty. He's got some to, chutzpah, you know? He's got some chutzpah, this guy. I think he has balls. Yeah. I like balls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's what he you said. You got balls. I like <laughs> balls. So, yeah, Yeltsin says, um, you know, I can work with this guy. Um, and, um, you know, Putin's loyalty to his benefactors leads him to being brought into the inner circles of the Kremlin. He's he's um you know he's then hired as the deputy head of this um you know this property agency uh ran by uh this guy named Pavel Borden and Borden's also a corrupt guy. He's involved in you know money laundering schemes and you know he's also being investigated for corruption as well. And when Putin is head of the FSB, he had prosecutor. He had that prosecutor who was investigating board and blackmailed with uh, with photos of prostitutes. Um, <laughs> oh man! Yeah, it's, you know, there's going to be a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. Now, the Yeltsin crew thought that Putin would show them the same type of loyalty. And Putin starts getting sponsors to join the inner ranks of the government. 
um, his main sponsors were uh, Anatoly Chabias. Um, so this is the guy behind uh, Russia's sh- uh, shock therapy and, and uh, privatization of the former Soviet industries. He was one of the main faces of, of that uh, to the West. Uh, you know, he would be the guy who would often be on the news, who would be doing interviews about the privatization. Um, you know, he's very fluent in English. He's actually, I actually um, read about him. He's, he's leaving Russia in response to the current war in Ukraine. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so he's, he's recently been in the news, but it, the Western media kind of fawned over him during, in the time. Um, his other sponsor was uh, Alexei Kudrin, who was another technocrat who he had worked with in uh, St. Petersburg. And then uh, Boris Berzowski, who was the most powerful Russian oligarch and mafia figure in Russia in the 90s. So, in 1997, Putin was promoted to deputy presidential chief of staff, and a year later to first deputy chief of staff. So, he was like the chief of staff for Mm -hmm. Yeltsin. And later on, I think in 98, he's appointed to the head of the FSB. So, I mean, the FSB position was a position that he used to, you know, he he used that to help out his former patrons also to, you know, further facilitate ties with the security organs in the state, which, you know, which kind of leads to his power and his ability to take on rivals and things like that. Right. Right. And it's important to note that, that Putin basically rose through the ranks through that patronage. Right. And, and not by, you know, working through the election process or, or even working inside of a political party. It was basically just, you know, a likable guy, you know, and he, he did people favors uh, and he called on them. And, and this kind of relationship, this patron client relationship basically serves as a vehicle for, you know, elite recruitment during the Yeltsin years. Uh, I got a quote um, from a Russian academic, Peter Rutland. uh, And he writes, uh, Yeltsin created a political system that was held together through patronage and in which political succession hinged was the prerogative of the incumbent leader. There were other there were two other striking regularities of political succession under Yeltsin, the use of the post prime minister as a sounding board for potential successors, and the increasing reliance on security organs as a source of candidates. Three of the four prime ministers appointed in the last eighteen months of Yeltsin's role came from the security apparatus. Yeltsin had created a super presidential system where presidential power exceeded that of the legislature and was unconstrained by the emaciated judicial branch. It is described as elective monarchy where the president rules like a monarch, but is subject to periodic election. It's interesting. Uh, It is natural in such a system to expect that the president will select his successor. And when it came to Yeltsin, um, Yeltsin was a drunk. <laughs> yeah. He was manic depressive. Um, he also had very bad health issues. And when he was in office, you know, he was known to be paranoid. You know, he spent most of his time scheming against, um, you know, political rivals, primarily from the Russian Communist Party. That was the biggest rival to Yeltsin. 
And, um, you know, the Communist Party in Russia had a majority in the state Duma after this, the December uh, 1995 election. So during this time, Yeltsin was also extremely unpopular. By the time Yeltsin announced in early 1996 that he was going to be running for a second term, he had probably become became one of the most despised figures in Russia. Just just think about like some of the things that he had presided over. Um, just GDP GDP decline of fifty percent. There was hyperinflation. There was a huge increase in violent crime. There was mafia wars. There was a collapse of medical services. There were food and fuel shortages. Um, you know there was a non-payment of wages and pensions. There was a plunge in life expectancy. Um, you know, not even mentioning that a couple of years earlier, he had bombed the Russian parliament mm-hmm. and he had killed hundreds of people. Yep. I mean, and also the very unpopular war in Chechnya between 94 and 96, which ended up being right. a disaster. Which we'll talk about as well. But, you know, I think this is this is probably what people talk about when they reminisce on like the good old days of the Soviet Union. You know, the transition was with Yeltsin was just I feel like it was just comparatively so terrible that it's it was kind of easy to forget any of the bad parts about living in the Soviet Union because it just sucked so bad uh, in the immediate time thereafter. I've actually gotten the chance to speak to a few folks who have actually lived in the Soviet Union or whose parents grew up uh, there. And, you know, there's this kind of fondness from that time that goes along with talking about the fallen. I, I think it, it might might be a direct correlation to how bad it was right after the fall. Now, personally, I don't have this lived experience and I tend to be allergic to communism, in particular the Soviet brand. But I hear where people are coming from. You know, especially when you think about how bad it was immediately after the fall of Yeltsin. It makes you wonder how Yeltsin won in the first place or how he (laughs) hung on for as long as he did. Well, let's put a pen in that because I just read um, uh, Stephen Cohen's last book, who who is, you know, one of the most famous Russian scholars of all time. He had died last year and um, he had written about how in Russia, one of the most revered figures is actually Stalin. Mm-hmm. And I guess most people are kind of, and this is a guy who's written a lot about like how horrible Stalin was and, and what a brutal monster he was. The reason why is because a lot of Russians see him as the guy who drove the Nazis out. Going back to your question, how does Yeltsin win? The only reason Yeltsin won was because of the massive intervention from the United States. So Mm. the U.S. sent an army of political operatives to help Yeltsin on his campaign. And they also strong-armed the IMF to give Russia a $10 billion loan so they could pay overdue wages to pensions to millions of people. Right. That That's how we particular point was super relevant because that was one of the stronger sticking points. I mean, like... They can deal with a lot of the other issues, but when you ain't paying people, like that's, yeah, kind of drawing a line. There's this famous Times article, and I was talking about this with Joe um, a couple of weeks ago, called uh, Yanks to the Rescue. That's the cover. Yanks to the Rescue. And 
it's basically, just type it in real quick so you can get your reaction. I want to see your reaction from Yanks to the Rescue. All right. Everyone listening, type in Yanks to the Rescue. Oh, my God. Look at that. What does it say? Exclusive. Yanks to the Rescue. The secret story of how American advisors help Yeltsin win. And for those who don't feel like Googling it, it's like this chubby watercolor caricature of Yeltsin here. Interesting. Very interesting. And he's holding an American flag, which is also incredibly interesting. Yeah, it kind of sounds like collusion, right? But it's it's just so funny that we're bragging about it. Like the mm-hmm. the media reaction is like, oh, look how, or look at look our political we machine. We're able to get whoever we want elected. This mm-hmm. guy was hated, and we still were able to pull off him winning. That's what the article is about. Like how this guy sucks so much, and we were able to send our political operatives in to change that around. Aren't we so witty? Aren't we so smart? Like that's the article, and that what that's what it's about. So you can we, imagine why there could be a little bit of resentment on the other side when looking at something like that. Just a little bit, maybe. Just, just, just a little bit. Um, you know, one of the big benefactors as well was uh, was George Soros. Okay, to Yeltsin. <laughs> so he had donated uh, like hundreds of millions of dollars to um, you know different organizations in Russia, um, and then he he had invested like billions of dollars into Russian businesses. To make a long story short, Yeltsin wins the he secures his reelection in June of 1996. Mm-hmm. However, you know he was still unpopular. He still also had very bad health problems. He had a heart condition that kept him physically out of the Kremlin for eight of the twelve months following his reelection. Hmm. So, the inner circle of the Kremlin starts to evaluate successors to Yeltsin that are going to be friendly to them once Yeltsin's gone. Because remember, these guys are basically just, you know, they're criminals. So he goes through a lot of different people. None of them really work out. Uh, One of the guys who was selected as prime minister was named Primakov. Um, But this ends up going sour because Primakov, he had actually ordered uh, prosecutors to investigate corruption within the central bank. Oh, that's which annoying. tied to a lot of Yeltsin's friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of those friends was Boris Brzezowski. So this prosecutor who was in charge of these investi- investigations, he ends up being blackmailed into resigning with, you guessed it, tapes of him with prostitutes. Huh. Told you it's going to be a reoccurring thing. Yeah. Also, um, you know, a warrant was actually issued against Boris, uh, Boris Brzezowski, but the head of the police at the time refused to serve it. So uh, Brzezowski was able to get out of the country and escape to France. Um, but um, the police chief, um, his name was uh, Sergei uh, Stefishin, he's actually nominated to prime minister as a reward for his loyalty to, you know, uh, preventing Brzezowski uh, from getting arrested and letting him get out of the country. But this guy ends up getting fired, too. Huh. Because he's in charge of the Chechen situation, and he mishandles it. So now Putin comes in. He's nominated as prime minister. He's uh, the fifth prime minister in just over 18 months. And when you think about it, 
the reason why Yeltsin went through so many prime ministers and, and potential successors was that he was vetting them. Not necessarily to find a good leader, but again, to find someone who wouldn't put him in jail afterwards. Is, is that um, what uh, is that what Trump was doing with all of his uh, communications directors? <laughs> sh- sure. With what? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, sure. Let's, let's go with that. But um, Putin was trusted not to turn Yeltsin in, not to backstab him, and um, Yeltsin resigns unexpectedly, and he puts Putin and he nominates. Well, he doesn't nominate him. He uh, basically makes Putin acting president. <clears throat> um, and Putin does, he doesn't turn on Yeltsin. It's just now, recently, Russian Russian media has has, uh, has been actually trashing Yeltsin, which is kind of a new event because there is that connection between Putin and Yeltsin. So Russian media doesn't go there a lot of the times, but now they're, they're actually, uh, there, was a, there was a documentary that was released by, I forget which Russian network, um, that went over like Yeltsin's corruption, <clears throat> which was like kind of a new phenomenon. But um, yeah, Putin grants him immunity as well as his fam. His uh, his daughter is granted immunity as well. His his daughter was like a political advisor to Yeltsin, who was also on the payroll, who was also in a lot of these weird schemes. So um, what's interesting is that now Putin becomes very popular. His approval rating as prime minister was 79%. In contrast, for the past several years, Yeltsin's approval rating had been in single digits. Yikes. I mean, how how does that even even happen? How does Putin gain so much popularity and he's literally attached to the Yeltsin regime and Yeltsin put him there? Well, I know it's kind of like if... uh, a Biden's approval rating was in single digits, but Kamala Harris's uh, approval ratings was like 80%. Right. That's, well, that's cra- crazy to think about. Well, there is a, there's a simple answer to this. One is that he was seen as a political outsider. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, who is this Putin guy? He's not part of the normal corrupt, corrupt political system. We never heard of him, really. The second is that the war in Chechnya happens, the second war in Chechnya. Okay, makes and sense. this is how he gets popular. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, 
Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So let's pull this back. Um, the Caucasus, you know, they're, they're conquered by the Russian Empire, this part in southern Russia. They're, they're conquered by the Russian Empire in the 19th century, and they became part of the Soviet Union, and it was always a very hard place to subdue. While the Soviet Union was falling apart, Chechen nationalists saw an opportunity to secede. So Chechnya declared independence in 1991. And basically the Russians, they make the decision that, you know, north of the Caucasus Mountains, they were going to keep that. And then everything south of the Caucasus Mountains you know, Georgia and everything like that, you know, whatever. That's not part of Russia anymore. But everything north of that, that's Russia. That's that we're keep that's part of our territory. Mm-hmm. Um and Yeltsin, you know, the Yeltsin regime was, you know, busy with so many other things. Um, you know, they kind of you know, a lot of they, they weren't they initially weren't um you know, they kind of granted autonomy to they these busy, regions. Do, that, too busy doing but, crime to pay attention to Chechnya. <laughs> Yeah, too too busy, uh, you know, drinking and walking around Washington D.C. with no pants on, right? Um, with looking for pizza. That's a true story. But eventually, they're like, "All right, we gotta we gotta solve this Chechen problem." So, um, in 1994, Russia attempted to overthrow the Chechen regime by covert action, which you know, with with like disguised Russian military personnel. Um, that ends up failing. So the Yeltsin regime mounted a military intervention, which just became a disaster for the Russians. It, it turned into a protracted struggle that reinforced Chechen nationalism, and, and uh, ultimately it led to an Islamic revival. So Chechnya became probably like an insurgency, right? Classic insurgency. And Russia found itself in an unpopular war. Checks out to me. Yeah, so it gets it gets bad. It gets so bad that Yeltsin had to basically defuse the war in Chechnya. Um, he had negotiated a ceasefire in the spring of 1996, and then um, you know afterwards, when you know assured of his reelection, Yeltsin renewed the fighting. But in this renewed fighting, they ended up you know they don't start winning. They they end up losing Grozny, the capital of Chechnya. Chechnya, and um, after that, fighting starts to simmer down. But a few years later, something else happens in Europe that uh, you know reignited the conflict, and that's the the NATO intervention in Kosovo happens, in which um, you know NATO supports the Kosovo Liberation Army against the Serbs. Right, and 
the KLA is filled with gangsters and um, Islamist terrorists and organ harvesters. So the Chechen separatist movements are like, well, how about that? We have a bunch of gangsters and terrorists in our ranks. We have a bunch of former Mujahideen fighters in our ranks. I guess, I guess we can just do what we want. So right. in August of 1999, the Chechen military went into, uh, they invaded Dagestan to create, you know, an Islamic insurgency. And Dagestan is, is you know, to the east of Chechnya. It's also predominantly Muslim. Um, so it was Prime Minister uh, Stefishin's inability to prevent the Chechens, uh, you know, the Chechen attack, which provided the excuse to replace him with Putin. Okay. And, you know, Putin as head of the FSB at the time was the obvious choice to replace him. Okay, so now's where you're going to tell us that Putin did a good job handling this war, right? So this is where he got his good ratings from, right? Well, you have to take in mind this. There were a series of massive bombings across Russian cities that killed more than 300 people. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of like, you know, George Bush right after 9-11. Even liberals liked Bush right after 9-11 happened. And, um, you know, in this case, it was, you know, it was a true national security threat for Russians. Like they were experiencing a lot of terrorism. Yep. Yep, that's true. Um, You know, I I think I've even heard, though, that some skeptics argue that that um, (laughs) that it didn't go down that way, that that Putin was actually following like this. It's like wag the dog scenario where he like deliberately engineered the conflict in order to boost the, you know, his electoral chances. And there were some reports uh, that those September bombings uh, and even the Chechen invasion of Dagestan itself were all like black operations, like false flags or whatever uh, that were done by the Russian security forces. Yeah, that's a theory. Um, people, people say that, that Putin actually had planned that for his, uh, for his election. Um, we, we spoke about the Lifinchenko affair in previous yeah, episode. That was a long time ago. You know, in, in 2006, uh, a former KGB officer named um, Alexander, Alexander uh, Lifinchenko was allegedly assassinated on, on British soil. And according to the British government, uh, Lifinchenko's tea was spiked with a massive dose of... Um, radioactive polonium or polonium 210 right that's the poisonous that's the one that kills you specific one yeah Mm -hmm. and they had pointed the finger at the fsb the reason why they had blamed putin was was because this guy had been rapidly anti-putin right Uh, he he wrote a book called blowing up russia that blame the apartment bombings on the FSB and Putin. Now, um, you know, none of these claims have ever been proven, these bombing claims. Um, and you have to take note that Livinchenko was a was a patron of, or, you know, Boris Borzowski was his patron, who at that point had been exiled from Russia and was Putin's bitter, bitter enemy. 
Um, so, you know, uh, I've talked about the, the, um, the book uh, Godfather of the Kremlin, uh, Paul Kletnikov, which is all about the, you know, the corruption of Boris Berzowski. He, he had speculated that uh, Berzowski had himself financed the apartment bombings in an attempt to rise Putin's popularity. Because at that point, Berzowski, you know, he was in the inner circle of the Yeltsin uh, crew, the Yeltsin family. They called themselves the family. Like, that's what they were called. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the Sopranos or whatever. Um, the family. So he was part of the family. And um, he was counting on Putin to pardon him once he was elected as president. And the reason why he speculates this is because uh, Berzowski had used the Chechen mafia as his own personal enforcers. And, uh, you know, he had been covertly, covertly, uh, you know, these rebels in Chechnya and things like that. Um, you know, Paul, Paul uh, Klepnikov was, was assassinated right after he wrote this book in a really <laughs> weird, a really weird circumstance where he, there was, a, I think it was a drive-by and he was still alive after the drive-by shooting. He was in Moscow. I think he was in Moscow. And then on his way, I think when his, um, when he was taking, when he's being taken up to the hospital, like the elevator broke down and he died in the elevator. It was something real weird. Um, hmm. It's a real weird story. But even in this book, though, um, Paul Klepnikov, he he makes it clear that this is like, you know, speculative that Boris Berzowski had planned the the Moscow bombings. Like he's like at the end of the book, he like writes how it could be, and then he kind of ends it. At, there's a there's a chapter on how Boris Berzowski could have planned the apartment bombings, but at the last paragraph, he's like, "But this is all speculation. The most likely outcome is that it was a Chechen terrorist who actually did." And it was reminds me, like a false flag. That reminds me a bit of like O.J. Simpson's book, "If I Did It," where he like writes this hypothetical book about how he would have killed her, uh, yeah. and but at the end, he's like, "Oh, but you know, obviously, I didn't kill her," <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, the, the stories around this, you know, are kind of wild and, and like there's motivations on on a bunch of different sides. So you're, you're right to say that 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 these allegations have never been proven, but all of the ancillary things that happen around it, in particular, all the assassinations, you know, people you know getting offed because they're talking about shit like this. Not a very good look. And, you know, when I think about the, you know, Berezovsky part of it, you know, it, it's entirely possible, you know, even plausible that that Berzovsky would have would have just done this on his own. But what I find pretty crazy that I didn't know about until like a little while ago is just that Berzovsky was financing the Chechens. I, I had no idea. Well, according to Moscow, he was he was charged with Put- that, that he was charged with that by Putin um, after Putin turns on him. He's one of the oligarchs that's exiled. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I kind of do believe it because if you I would encourage everyone to read the book. And I, I always recommend this book if, if you want to read one book on Russian politics in the 1990s. If you want to know about this history, um, read the book Godfather of the Kremlin. It is a v- very interesting book. Like you'll read it in like two days. It's just all about like how corrupt. There's a lot of books on this subject, but this is my favorite book on it. It's um, it's um really interesting and he kind of you know provides a lot of evidence that uh Berzowski was in fact financing then 
Um, but not only that, they had the support of the Saudis as well. That's right. So because many of these guys in Chechnya were veterans of the Afghan war in the 1980s, um, you know, they kind of needed a place to, you know, they, they still were patronizing these fighters who were fighting in Chechnya. Um, and then it was really weird is that at the same time, the U.S. was picking up the tab for Yeltsin's war. So if you're a cynic, if you want to make the most cynical conclusion of this, you could, because, you know, there's a lot of overlap with the U.S. and Saudi intelligence, and especially at that time in the 1980s, you could come to the conclusion that the U.S. was tacitly supporting the Chechen rebels just to keep them fighting. You know, I don't know if how you could, you know, includes, I think there's some people who claim it. I haven't seen the evidence that conclusively concludes that, but I don't know. So I'm becoming more so cynical about U.S. Define, foreign policy define tacitly. Well. Define tacitly supporting, though. Like, were they giving them money or support or just kind of like cool with them fucking around? Like, I think um, financing them with the Saudis, like money, but... I'm not sure. I haven't found any. I, I've heard people say that that's that was happening. That the the CIA was financing the Chechen rebels. Um, Moscow says it all. Putin says it all the time that mm. the U.S. financed them. Um, well, he I'm would not 100 percent. What's that? He would say that. So <laughs> he would say that. Well, that's part like that's when he lists his gripes in the West. Uh, you know, that will be one of the bullet points. Like the mm. U.S. financed Chechen terrorists in the 1990s. Um, and still do today in Syria, but I've—I'm no expert on that. That's just you know things I've heard, not that I've read, type of thing. Um, but um, but back to the war. The second, the second war in Chechnya. Um, this time the Russians don't hold anything back. You know they go in with the full force of their military, and um, you know they bomb. I mean, they bombed the shit out of Chechnya. Um, they leveled Grozny, um, you know, with with cluster bombs and artillery. And, you know, they were able to do this because in contrast to the first Chechen war, the Russian public and, you know, and media were strongly supportive of the war efforts this time around. Right. Um, also, a lot of Russians felt betrayed by NATO's bombing campaign against Yugoslavia that had just happened in March of 1999. So they, you know, they kind of felt like they had the right to intervene on their borders. Um, And, you know, Serbia as well was kind of like, you know, there's a lot of camaraderie between Russia and Serbia. Historically, like Russia has always been the protector protector of the Serbs. And, you know, the Russia tried to send peacekeeping troops into, uh, into uh, Serbia and, you know, there was almost a war over that. There was almost a con- an armed conflict, but um, you know they felt they had the right to intervene. And you know Putin knew exactly how to work the propaganda system in Russia to get his support for that war, which included right. like stifling any type of opposition media. Um, you know, same thing. What he's doing, what the Russian state is doing now. You know, they right. You know, the Russian state is, is stifling opposition media and. You know, it's criminal now to, I think it's, um, I forget the exact sentence, like a 15-year sentence if you uh, criticize the military 
Yikes. That's yeah. nuts. I mean, like, clearly, it seems like he's attempting to use that same playbook in Ukraine today, for sure. But I feel like there are some differences. Yeah, I mean, they were doing... It, I guess it's kind of hard for us to see the, you know, the, a lot of the evidence of that stifling that you're talking about. Uh, and maybe it just looks more prevalent now because we have mass media, right? Um, but at least from my perspective, it didn't doesn't look like he necessarily had to arrest a bunch of protesters and science media back then because a lot of the folks, you know, already supported the war due to the bombings from the Chechens. Uh, he also didn't have to worry about the social media or like 24-7 corporate media, you know, uh, component either. So, you know, thinking about it now, I could imagine if that same scenario were to occur today, you'd probably see a ton of media, particularly in the West, would probably pick up that false flag narrative um, uh, either you know, saying that Putin did it himself or some oligarch like Berzowski did it. You know, I, I, I totally see that being, you know, part of the, uh, the counter narrative there for sure. So what, what would happen in the West is because what happens with a lot of these oligarchs that Putin um, ended up turning on or their relationships got sour, they end up fleeing to, you know, either London or Israel mm-hmm. and they become friends with like Richard Pearl and the neoconservatives and, start writing guest articles and having features in, in, uh, you know, whatever publications. But, um, yeah, I mean, I I could definitely see that. Let's just say if this happened 20 years ago, or let's just say, um, this happened now, like the war in Chechnya, um, -hmm. what the Russians did was pretty bad. And, and Drosny, they leveled, they they leveled that Carpet bombing is not, it's, it's like illegal for a reason. Yeah. It's, but, um, you know, you, you would probably see that narrative um, that you'd probably see something like Russian oligarch who would be like, I have direct links that Vladimir Putin did the Moscow bombings as a pretext to start this war for his own popularity. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's kind of like 9-11. It, it's what I've read of it, those apartment bombings. It's kind of like 9-11 truther type shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who knows? Who 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 knows? What we may really never happens. know because we may never know. Any of that evidence is definitely dead by now. Uh, Putin's a brutal, is a brutal gangster. You know, I mean, who knows? But it's and I just never was really convinced of that narrative. Like it seems like um, there's enough terrorism that's happened in the past two decades that has led me to believe that sometimes it's just terrorists. Terrorism is just terrorism. Yeah. Terrorism is just terrorism. A lot of times there's not some person behind that, you know, specific bombing. Um, But um, we're going to fall, fly or fall, fly off the rails, fly off the rails. Sounds cool. Yeah. Let's maybe get back to it. Maybe we can talk um, a little are, bit about the uh, the Duma elections in 99. Yeah. So the Unity Party was launched three months before the election. That's Putin's party, the Unity Party. And the creation was orchestrated by the Kremlin with the help f- from the media outlets controlled by Boris Berzowski. Um, so the Berzowski-controlled... Um, um, ORT television and um, basically it just launched a propaganda blitz you know against any potential political rivals and um, you know the, the philosophy was pretty simple 
um, or Unity's philosophy was pretty simple. It was just support Prime Minister Putin, who was leading the fight against the Chechen bandits. Bandits was always used, the word bandits, whenever you're reading about it. Um, there's another quote from uh, Peter Rutland. I sent it over to you. Sure. If you want to read it. Yeah. So it reads, uh, one important difference was that Putin did not need his political technologists to conjure up a phony communist threat since there was already a very real war in progress in Chechnya. Putin's democratic legitimacy was forged in war. Media coverage of the war was relentless. The historic, excuse me, the heroic sacrifices of Russian soldiers, the suffering of civilians, the inhumanity of the bandits, the determination of Putin, the hypocrisy of the West. It was a story that played endlessly during the months between Yeltsin's resignation and the election on 26th of March. The typical night's television news would lead with 10 to 15 minutes of stories from Chechnya, a patriotic pounding that was often emotionally wrenching. Funerals of dead soldiers, sometimes attended by Putin and top generals, with the requisite orthodox rites, formed an elaborate theater of la patrie and en danger. (laughs) I hope I said that right in French. Um, For this viewer, the tone of the war coverage did not differ substantially between three main TV channels. So Vladimir uh, Guzinski's NTV, Berezovsky's ORT, and the state-owned RTR. Although NTV was somewhat more critical, especially in the period up to December. The point of the election was not to select a president from a field of competing candidates, nor to debate the issues. The purpose was to use the majesty of a free and fair election to legitimize Putin in the office of the president. So one of the stories I haven't heard, someone told me this this uh, story, but I haven't been able to find video evidence of it or a picture evidence of it. But um, someone told me that Putin used to walk around with a machete a lot of times when he was being filmed. What? Like talking about the Chechen war to like make himself seem like a badass. A, a machete though? That makes you yeah. look like in like a fucking maniac. Not, not I don't know. Maybe maybe I misheard this person, but I couldn't find the visual, the the photograph that that proved that. But maybe someone who's listening to this can find that. That'd be cool. Um, but yeah, like he used to, you know, he was just kind of like great on propaganda. You know, he's. I mean, right now the it's. I think there was like a. The support for the war in Ukraine and Russia right now is pretty pretty big. It's um, it's like I don't know. I guess you can't trust the polls, but from when I saw, it's like seventy percent. Um, and they have like that Z propaganda campaign and stuff. And yeah, um, you know, it's he's good. Like that's what he, he's good at. This Did you? like that's he's good at like doing the wartime stuff and knowing how to run the propaganda on wars like this and. He's like that's just what that's what he came to power on, um, like doing this exact thing. So um, it's uh, it's it's in, he's kind of getting back to his old business. Now, um, Putin wins the election with fifty two point nine percent of the vote, so he avoided the runoff election. And um, you know we were talking about you know it's widely understood that Russia was ruled by a group of oligarchs. Right. So, again, these were the businessmen 
who had grown rich during the process of market reform. Some of them gained control of companies during the uh, voucher privatization launched in 1992. Others had bought state-owned factories at a discount during the loans for shares auctions of 1995. Basically, these guys paid rock-bottom prices in these kangaroo auctions, and you know they gained de facto control of companies like Gazprom and Unified Energy Systems and um, you know ORT. Um, Here's a quote from uh, Justin Romando that I was going to read because I love his writing so much. Um, the industrial base of the Russian economy was sold off for a song. The whole process amounted to a spree of looting such as such as hadn't been since the sack of Rome. Yeah. I actually watched a pretty good video on this topic recently. Uh, the short version of it is that uh, Russia wasn't basically wasn't too keen on selling off their industry in the open market because, you know, they were understandably worried about these foreign entities coming in and, and gobbling up all their major resources. And, you know, I mean, at the time, Russia was broke. You know, no one could really afford to buy them up, you know, in Russia at market value uh, for those industries. So what ends up happening is that they just kind of let their political cronies have first dibs on the industries or alternatively, you know, anyone who was willing to bribe or blackmail the right official could have a stab at it. And and of course, what's important about this is that all of these industries that were purchased, the deals were made on the cheap, like dirt, dirt cheap, way, way, way cheaper than they reasonably should have been. And that by itself is bad because it devalues the, you know, uh, the industry itself. But the really bad part was that, you know, these oligarchs basically take all of this money that they make from these industries that they bought for pennies on the dollar and they start using it as their personal piggy banks because, you know, why not? I mean, they got all these industries through sketchy means anyway. What else do you expect them to do with the profits? And what's also interesting is that to add the, like some insult to that injury, the playbook was to take these profits and go and invest them privately in foreign countries, you know, particularly in the UK, uh, and and they did this, and and the result of this is that this money that they were extracting out of the you know the Russian industries really didn't come back into Russia to help the Russian economy at all, which you know creates a, a vicious downward cycle, and 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 a lot of economists actually speculate that if those industries had been put on the open market, like the real capitalist open market, that Russia would probably be an economic powerhouse today. But again, there's still the issue of like ceding your critical industries to foreign entities, you know, so who knows? But I think, you know, what's what's interesting about this is that, you know, they, they shifted from, like you said early on in the show, a centralized government, you know, planned government to, you know, what I'm going to use soft quotes here for capitalist government it really wasn't capitalism, right? It it was this weird perversion of capitalism like this. this it was it was a thinly veiled capitalism. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they they, they didn't. Really it was just a perfect storm. It was a perfect opportunity for corruption. You know, you have you have a combination of um, all right. So you have like a state, the Soviet Union, that owns all the industries. All the industries or sectors are state ran. 
But it also is very corrupt in the Soviet Union. There's a patron system. You know, people are still, you know, there's parallel economies. There's a lot of favoritism. There's nepotism. It's not merit-based society or anything. So, of course, when the Soviet Union disintegrated and, you know, they real, you know, they put all these, these, um, these um, companies, these massive companies that would be worth billions and billions of dollars on the open market, up for sale, you know, the people who had the opportunity to purchase them were the people who were politically connected to that regime. That's it was right. just a perfect, it was a perfect storm. And, you know, it's, it's like a dang, it's like a, it's like a danger to, I don't, I mean, I wanted to learn about success stories of like going from a extremely, um, you know, centralized uh, state, everything state owned economy to a privatized economy where this doesn't happen um maybe i need to find better find examples, examples. Well, Be- better I mean, yeah, you're not going to find a good that. example but, with russia but i mean again i want to come back to the within, fact that with any of the soviet run states you're not going to find them they're all no. it was all disaster no and i want to come back to that idea that it, again sure there was plenty of corruption and yes absolutely the way that they sold these businesses was definitely a kangaroo auction but you know, you got to keep in mind that it, it wasn't strictly or purely just a corrupt motivation to sell off the industries. There was a a serious national interest concern of, you know, letting letting other companies come in and take, uh, letting other countries come in and take all their industry. I mean, think about ch- what China does today, right? And like how dangerous that is economically, where they'll go into a, why is Siri talking to me? Shut up. Do you hear this? Fucking <laughs> serious. Wrong speak. You are a Russian asset Putin apologist. <laughs> Putin apologist. I don't know what I said that 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 activated her, but whatever. What was I saying? It, like, look at China for a moment. And China, what China does today is they'll go into countries, and particularly they like to pick developing countries, ones that are already rife with you know, internal corruption and and turmoil, and in particular ones that don't have a lot of money, which Russia was at the time. And they go in and they buy up an industry. They say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna invest in your country. We're gonna we're gonna build a a dam. We're gonna build a, you know, a a, a fucking oil rig, whatever it is that they're gonna build. We're gonna build a road, right? A port, whatever. And and they say, well, we'll do it on the cheap and, you know, it's going to make your country so much better and you'll get all this cash and, and and you'll reap the benefits of having this. And in return, we're just going to skim a little off the top, right? What ends up happening is that these these things come at a premium uh, and when, when the country can't pay that premium, they just seize the asset, right? And they keep it and it's theirs and they can do whatever the hell they want with it. And so Russia at this time is... You know, obviously China hadn't been doing this practice back in the 90s yet, but Russia certainly, you know, had that idea in their mind when they were thinking about this. And they certainly did have an opportunity to open up these industries to the open market and do real capitalism like everybody wanted. Um, but it it just, you know, it's, it's kind of a hard pill to swallow. And then, yes, of course, you tack on top of that the rampant corruption, <laughs> you know, And like you said, it becomes a perfect storm. 
We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. You know how you, know how you become a rich country or a how? wealthy country? You have to make complex products and not export all your natural resources. You can yep. export natural resources, but if you just export... If you're, if you're just exporting your natural resources and then you're buying imports like complex products then you're, you're forever not going to become a wealthy country. Right. And it's, it's, like, renting, does, it's like renting versus owning, you know? Yeah. You're just giving your like, money away to somebody else. You can send, you can send all of your, um, you can pump all of your oil, you can pump all of your gas, you can uh, provide timber, wheat, and all that stuff, all, um, all these commodities. But if you're still exporting cars and stuff, then, you know, you're still not going to be in the, in have a huge economy. I mean, you know, China makes stuff. Um Japan makes stuff, South Korea makes stuff, Germany like makes stuff. Germany makes a lot of shit. Yeah. You know, everything that's fucking cool or good, you know, if you have something that's really good, I'm like, "Oh, this is kind of an awesome thing." And you look like where it's made, it's like, "Oh, it was made in Germany." Like a cool Japan, watch and shit. Or skis and shit like that. Like, oh, this is a great stroller. Where was a stroller made? Oh, it's Sweden. Um, Germany so, makes like, really good, like, industrial machines, right? So it's like they, they even jump up on the ladder, too. They're like, I'll do you one better. Not only are we going to make complex things, we're going to make complex things to help you make complex things. They're the supplier of the complex thing maker, which is nuts. Yeah, I mean, and that's how a country becomes, um, you know, wealthy is building complex stuff. I mean, Russia does build complex things, but that's all part of their military-industrial complex. Right? Like they build, and it's like more, you know, it's they not like really cool our military-industrial. <laughs> What's know? that? Like they build really cool our jets. MIC has so much the so much capital to uh, to exploit that they can like get away with making a. Uh, a uh, trillion dollar plane that falls out of the sky like the right. F-35 
But, you know, this, the Russians don't have that. Uh, they don't have that luxury. Bill. They don't have that luxury. So they have to actually make, you know, good shit for a reasonable cost. But, yeah, they have the science background, to, you know, to, to do a lot of, like, incredible things scientifically. But that's usually geared towards their their military. Um, but I guess that's getting off to topic. Maybe that's another thing that we could talk about. Um, but just going back to um, the um, you know, the Boris Yeltsin election of 96, the oligarchs, they all had united to support him. However, the oligarchs start to divide into rival camps after the 1996 election. Mainly they're just, you know, they're arguing over who's going to divvy up the spoils of different Russian industries. And then there's a huge financial crisis in 1998 that seriously undermined their cash flow and and bankrupted many of their firms. Mm -hmm. Because a a lot of these oligarchs, you know, again, like you had said, you know, they weren't running efficient businesses. They were just using these businesses as piggy banks. So they weren't like making better, you know, services or making better products. Um, And like in terms of like oil and stuff like that, you know, there's not that much you need to change like you're just keeping the oil pumping you know what i mean so mm-hmm. but they weren't doing like the maintenance and stuff they weren't getting the most they weren't getting the most out of their gas fields they weren't uh, reinvesting oil fields. they weren't, they weren't reinvesting, reinvesting yeah mm-hmm. like making like a profitable business so a lot of these businesses started to fail and um um around this time it's it's when a lot of people become a lot more hostile towards these oligarchs um, so I just read another another really good book, and I just read this today, um, and uh, Putinomics, and um, there's a poll that's cited. Uh, one poll in July 2003 found that 88% of Russians believed that all large fortunes were accumulated illegally, while 77% wanted privatization results fully or partially reversed, and 57% supported criminal investigations. So... Hmm. The attitude towards um, oligarchs in Russia became really uh, hostile, and it's why a lot of people in Russia probably don't really care that a lot of these oligarchs have been sanctioned, because a lot of the oligarchs now are, are the same oligarchs as before. They just kind of capitulated to Putin. Putin kind of made a couple of them examples, um, um, made examples out of them, but at the time. In the 90s and 2000, Putin was why he was regarded as a tool of the Yeltsin clique because that's what he was. I mean, he was a guy who did stuff for the Yeltsin crew, and right. uh, you know he he owed his path to power to their patronage. And to make a long story short, Putin reigns these oligarchs in after he becomes president. Um, so, um, you know, a week before his uh, presidential election, he had announced on a radio show that the oligarchs who have been merging power with capital, um, that their class was going to cease to exist. And he made that before the election. And I guess at that time, he, he had been confident that, you know, the election was already in the bag. Um, you know, it was pretty clear that he was going to win. And it's got you know, balls. Once yeah. Um, and once he became president, he has this big meeting. It's like a show meeting. It's kind of scripted, too. 
where I think everything was scripted in advance. But, you know, he had put pressure on these guys and said, uh, listen, like, I'm the boss, and you're going to act in the interest of the state. So you can still be rich. You can still be a billionaire. But you're going to do stuff that's, uh, like, when I tell you to do something, like to hire people or to not file, not do layoffs or to do something that's in the interest of, like, the state, you're going to do it and you're going to like it or, you know, there's going to be a problem. And, um, you know, that problem could be you're in jail or, you, you know, you'll be killed. Um, so he had the power to do that because he had been, you know, working, you know, within the security state for, for many years at this point. So he had, you know, the power to, uh, kind of take on the, the oligarchs. Um, you know, the industries that were really important for him were the, uh, you know, the operate, the industry operators that were interwined in foreign policy, like oil and gas, so, I mean, like, think about that. You know, but Putin didn't really care about the, the retail magnets and stuff like that because retail doesn't really affect foreign policy. So, but on the other hand, oil and gas really does. Steel, oil, gas, steel, major commodities. Those are things that really impact your foreign policy. So those yeah. are the type of things that he's... You know, you know, the state is going to heavily monitor and, you know, it's going to be a top down approach like he's like a true dictator. And I think we got into a little bit of an argument, not an argument, but an conversation two episodes ago, <laughs> conversation us over the semantics of, of oligarchs, mm-hmm. um, just over the word oligarchs. I think a lot of people use the word oligarch to mean rich person or extremely wealthy person. Right. To me. Uh, I guess I always thought that oligarch or the correct term of the word just refers to uh, oligarchy means like the rule of a few versus monarchy versus rule of one. And Mm -hmm. in Russia's case, I feel like Russia, like those billionaires no longer are are oligarchs because they're still it's it's top down. You know, they're still um, the, the ultimate decision maker is Vladimir Putin, who's you know, a true dictator. So um, I think we got into a little bit. I just call them the billionaire class now. They were oligarchs yeah. before because they were making decisions. Uh, but that's just like a, that, you know, that's just something, that's just semantics. Um, I guess it's more, you know, I know what you, when people say oligarch, I know what you mean. Just like extremely rich billionaire person who, you know, has, has a say in world affairs type thing. Um, but the main guy he goes after is... Mikhail Kordakowski. And at the time, uh, Kordakowski was considered the richest man in Russia. So here's another quote from Putinomics. Politically connected banks competed to attract government deposits in the early 1990s. For example, a bank might accept a billion ruble deposit from the government that it knew the government would not withdraw for six months. With the inflation rate running at double and triple digits, the value of the rubles the bank was obligated to return to the government decreased substantially every month. Borrowing rubles converted them into dollars and paying back depreciated rubles several months later provided banks with substantial profits. 
The mode was simple, but the returns were enormous, allowing oligarchs such as Mikhail Khodorkovsky accumulate to accumulate vast fortunes. By using their political clout to pay interest rates far below inflation, these banks' early profits derived from money skimmed from the state budget. Hmm. Well, the reason why uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky was a was a target was because I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but he had he had used those profits. He got he started basically the first uh, you know bank in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. And he, it was purely based off his political political connections. He was like a high official in the Communist Youth League, and um, you know he was able to use those political connections to start a, you know a financial institution. And and, and um, you know he had been using you know he used that that bank in, in a corrupt manner, and he used those profits to purchase the Russian oil company Yukos for three hundred and fifty million dollars. We're talking about. A state, a former state-run oil company that is worth billions of dollars, billions and billions and billions of dollars. The amount of natural resources and oil and gas that Russia has, they bought this. He bought this for three hundred and fifty million dollars. That's um, nothing. You know, through through one of these rig. I mean, it sounds like nothing. Three hundred. It sounds like a lot, but. For what it's worth, no, it's like how much is the Ramco valued out? It's it's literally nothing. I mean, there's a joke that they say about you know the differences in money, and I'll tell you now, Henry. What is the difference between a million dollars and a billion dollars? What? Roughly a billion dollars. I know. It's literally it's literally a billion dollars. You know, it's like. The differences are so stark. So if you're talking about a multi-billion dollar company being scooped up for $350 million, it's, it's just, it's it's insane. Like um, Saudi Aramco is the biggest petroleum and natural gas company in the world. And their revenue in 2020 was $229 billion alone. It's crazy. Um, so it, it's just... It's it's a crazy low price. It's a fire sale. It's what you call a fire sale. We got a fire sale going on right now by former state-ran uh, companies or sectors and industries for a budget. Everything three hundred fifty million dollars. So um, yeah, Putin goes after this guy, and there's a big show trial in Russia, um, and it's all it's in the Western press too. Um, you know, covering it because it's kind of like, oh, Putin's in power now and he's going after people and he's having these show trials. And it was a show trial. Like they made a big scene out of it on purpose. And the purpose was to, you know, send the message to the other oligarchs that, you know, if you if you cross Vladimir Putin or if you don't do what he wants, then, you know, he's going to do this to you. He's going to, you know, humiliate you, throw you in a gulag in Siberia for 10 years because mm-hmm. Kordakowski was in jail for about 10 years or sentenced to 10, 10 years in jail. Um, and I think it was it was for uh, like tax. He got them on tax evasion because they weren't, you know, underpaying taxes and stuff like that. But, um, you know, there's a lot of speculation of why he did this. Um, you know, there was Kordakowski was probably the, the guy who was most vocally against Putin and who was like, oh, like, 
you know what we're do- what these oligarchs are doing is just you know private capitalism you know we're the best business people that's why we're rich uh but that i think they also had disputes over um like pipelines and stuff in asia like they had like actual uh visionary disputes over like where to put pipelines and stuff um and um I think that was like what why Putin like they just he wasn't going to he wasn't on board with what Putin's vision was or what right. you know he thought the national interest was for you know pipeline placement and stuff like that. I think it was a it was a pipeline to China that was like their big difference. Um so yeah, he puts him in jail. Um a lot of people say it's because of like um you know rival he thought that he could be a political opponent as well. But that's probably that's very unlikely that Kordakowski was going to be a political opponent because of just how much the Russian public despised, you know, this new billionaire class that emerged. Um, and the in the in the trial itself, it was kind of a sham. Like they did actually, the Russian government actually exaggerated a lot of the crimes of Kordakowski. Um, but again, well, it was meant course. to. He was guilty of a lot of them, but he but they exaggerated them to you know make it as bad as possible for future people who who would who would turn on him. So um, um, he then goes after Boris Brzezowski, and Boris Brzezowski is one of his main benefactors, um, you know, in his rise to power. He's one of the family the Yeltsin family guys, and um, you know he makes him give up his shares to ORT. Um, he also makes him. He basically uh, strips him of all of his assets in Russia, and um, you know he's. Uh, I forget like what the term is used, but he's exiled from the country. Mm-hmm. So um, he, um, you know, he allows other oligarchs to operate. So like uh, Roman uh, uh, Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea. Yeah. So he's you know he's allowed to operate in Russia. Um, but you know, he's, he's kind of, uh, he's got to watch, he's got to, he's got to watch his back. So, I mean, in that context, that's how Putin, you know, uh, where he originates and he comes to power and, you know, how he's able to, uh, ultimately position himself as a patriot, the Russian patriot. So, um, he appealed to Russian patriotism, you know, given his background in the security organs of the state, um, you know, given his background in the war in Chechnya um, and uh, pursuing this policy of, uh, you know, going after, you know, rich people who did not have the national interest of the country going as far as jailing them Russian voters accepted this patriotic sentiment at face value and I think most importantly there was no suggestion that he was a tool from the West and um, which you know he's I think he's, he's, he's which is safe to say he's, he's not really a tool of the West you know there's been times in his political career where he is uh, um worked with the West on some stuff, but I think a lot of the conflict is today is that is that, you know, there's there's a big state with a lot of natural resources that isn't um, you know, a client state. 
It's like the last non-client state. Um, and, you know, that's how, uh, I think that's how uh, Putin was able to, to uh, you know, take power. And don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say Putin, before I get labeled a Putin apologist. It's a little again, late for that now. A little late <laughs> we for that. started the show this way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, whatever. People are crazy. If you don't say, like, Putin was... Putin's mother was a dog and Putin he is bad. the devil and reincarnated like mm-hmm. you know he is not even a human being if you don't say that I would go back in time and kill Putin as an infant then you're automatically labeled as a Putin apologist like if you don't say if you don't say exactly what um the daily beast says then you're labeled a Putin a Putin uh apologist so you know I don't really give a fuck if some Somebody's Look, like, I mean, oh, I, I, I agree. It's 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 sometimes you know, especially because people have been been very much uh, you know listening to our show, especially in the last few weeks, you know, due to the the obvious you know crisis that's going on, and and I'm and I'm grateful for that, you know. But with that, you know, comes a lot of these you know folks who many of them clearly don't listen to the show and just you know immediately start you know putting together their assumptions about what we're talking about but i think it's super important you know right now to be able to to stop and and think about what's going on and and not just follow the the typical narratives that we're supposed to that we're quote supposed to say but also just to think about the history behind it and, and one thing that i really liked about doing this particular episode of putin you know is i think it gives a lot of context to what's going on right now uh, it it doesn't at all uh, justify what Putin is doing, not even close to it. And I can't believe I have to underscore that so much. But it it really does give you a sense for how we got here. It's I think it's super important, and we should be able to talk about it. You know, we should be able to talk about all kinds of things and 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 just kind of work through it in our heads so that we can understand better and make better form better opinions about what's going on. And again, just want to triple check Putin bad. <laughs> you know, we're not trying to glorify him here. It's just you know, he's he's got an interesting backstory and if 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 we're wanting to pay a lot of attention to this particular crisis, you know, we got to get to know Putin the person and figure out what's 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 behind what's behind this guy. Why why are we even what? talking about him? Do you, did you ever watch Arrested Development? Mm, not really. Oh, you're not going to get this reference, but maybe someone will, so I'll, I'll say it. There's a part where George Michael, the son of, of Michael Bluth, he has a teacher he has a crush on, so he gets her a, uh, he makes a reef for a collage of a bunch of pictures of Saddam Hussein. Oh, and God. his dad's like, wait, what, what are you doing there? He, He's like, oh, it's a gift for my teacher. She loves Saddam Hussein. And he's like, he's Michael's like, I'm sure she doesn't love Saddam Hussein. I'm sure she's interested in Saddam Hussein. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. It's, uh, it's um, yeah. And I want to underscore, I'm not trying to make a point that like Vladimir Putin is like the great patriotic leader of Russia who came to power and... Uh, exiled and put away and defeated all the criminal oligarchs. The point, I mean, 
if you look at Putin's politics, they, I mean, his economic plans, it's all about just like stability and having control over the industries himself and then putting his judo partners in power. You know, like that's been <laughs> yeah. kind of what he did. He put yeah. his old, he put his judo partners in power in, in, uh, um, got like dibs on a lot of like shares of these industries as well. Sure. Um, it's like you, you so it's not one set of case. Once he kicks out one set of oligarchs and just installs his own, right? So just, <laughs> yeah, he puts his own. He puts his own guys there. But I guess the system. But you can't. Here's the reality, though: the standard of living drastically increases under Putin over the next twenty years compared to the nineties. And I know you, if you want to say it's to his economic policies or what, like I don't. I'm not trying to say that. Maybe it's in spite of Putin that the that the standard of living increases. But it does increase, and a lot of Russian um, um, approval for him because I think a lot of the approval ratings that come back are very are, are positive to Putin, and people automatically scoff at them and they're like, "Oh well, it's Russia. It's fucking corrupt. Right. Oh, it's Russia. What do you expect?" It, it's like either they don't believe either they don't believe the validity of the of the polls, which is fair, right? Because they are coming out of Russia, or they're just like very confused at how can normal everyday Russian people support, you know, uh, a tyrant who is, you know, just bombing the shit out of a, a sovereign nation, you know, that didn't do shit to them. You know, that, that's what they're thinking. And, and if you're asking yourself that question, I think this episode helps to, you know, help you understand that. I mean, coming back to the beginning of the of the episode when we were talking about that crazy hundred thousand you know, pro-Putin, you know, Trump rally that, that you know, that we were talking about it, that the reason why these people, you know, like Putin in the first place is because of the context. The, the Yeltsin administration was terrible. The, the fall of the Soviet Union in the immediate period, uh, uh, you know, after that was terrible. It was, it sucked. And Putin kind of popped himself in at the right time and and did a couple of the right things where he was able to gain that popularity despite being attached to Yeltsin. And, you know, he was able to manipulate the media and play the, you know, the propaganda game so that people would like him. And he took advantage of of a of a of a terrorist situation. You know, I mean, think think about how many people loved George Bush for a while and how, you know, in hindsight. You know, a lot of a lot of people all over the world wonder why the hell we ever did. You know, considering all the things that that George Bush did. So when when you when you ask yourself that question, you really got to think about like what's the history behind it. You know, it's it's not just insanity, and it's not that Russian people are evil or something crazy. There's there's context behind it. There's context. I think a lot of people are scared of the standard of living decreasing which i mean probably will i mean with all the sanctions um you know well i guess we'll we'll see but i don't know how long of an impact it will be or when when they'll set in to really start hurting people um but i think a lot of it is and i'm not i don't want to sound like a tanky commie right now because i'm i think that stalin and the Soviet Union was a horrible. It was a tyranny ran by madmen. Right. Um, but there was a sense of like, kind of. I mean, even when I read about the Soviet Union, um, 
I can see like the kind of the symbolism and the propaganda and the grandeur of it being this kind of huge, magnificent thing. And, um, you know, I guess there was, had to be some pride in it, even though if it was a tyrant state um, with secret police and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, Russia after the 80s, you know, they were reduced to this kind of poor nation. Right. Where, um, again, I've, I've recommended this podcast before. Um, the Radio War Nerd, uh, Mark Ames is a, was a journalist there in Russia in the 1990s. And he was describing, um, he did an episode on the on the Yeltsin coup, like the, the Yeltsin bombing of parliament. It was like eight hours. They had like four parts of it. And uh, he was there and just, he said that, you know, he used the word self-loathing all the time. It was like a time of self-loathing for Russians. And mm-hmm. you can see that um, how a patriotic figure could uh, become very popular in that context. Uh, because sure. again, you know, nationalism, a lot of times, I think the biggest, produ- like the biggest, um, 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 Kindle to nationalism is the the humiliation story. You know, um, mm-hmm. like we were humiliated, and now we're back. Right. And like every politician does it. Like look at Trump. Like make America great again. I mean that's that's a direct homage to like we were great once, and now we're back, baby. We're back. Baby. We were once great, and we're gonna like that's a fucking inspiring message. Like. You right. can get people riled up over that. Like, and, and we were victims of this horrible thing, and now we're back, baby. Immediately thereafter, fucking... Biden uses a similar, you know, thing about like the national humiliation was Trump. <laughs> you know, yeah, and rally behind. Uses now that. we're back. You know, it's bring nationalism. Look, full food back. Seriously, nationalism. Like, I'm Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm Joe Brian. Bring our soul food back. Um, All right. Well, um, nationalism in general, like, can be positive in certain ways. It brings people together. But nationalism and patriotism also has kind of an ugly side where, you know, you just kind of forget about the bad parts and only focus on the things that matter to you or that you like, you know. Uh, And I think that's probably the reason why Putin is so popular because, you know, a lot of these Russian folks are focusing on the things that they like. And the calendar. I think the calendar does it. The airplane. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's end this thing. We're an hour and a half into it. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Bro History. If you like the show, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcast um, and uh, or Spotify. A lot of people have been uh, telling us that we're Putin apologists and we're Putin cronies. We appreciate your feedback. Um, we'll take that back to our Russian handlers. <laughs> and um, yeah, if you really want to support the show, um, you can also support us on Patreon, get access to our Slack account, other benefits and things like that. That's another way to support us. And um, anything else? No, man. All right. Peace. Peace.
feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.